Burns style. Welcome, fellow hunters and purveyors of adventure, to another edition of the Secret Podcast. I'm your host, JM. Joining me shortly will be the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. George Ward, otherwise known online as Burnstyle. This month's episodes deal with Houston, Texas. I say episodes because we've had so much content that we needed to separate it into two parts this month. So halfway through the month, we'll have a part two to this episode for all of you. This month, George and I talked to our friend and team member Will House about his adventures in Herman Park and at the Houston Zoo, and we'll also read over and discuss some of his personal correspondence with Byron Price. Before we chat with Will House, I just wanted to remind people, as I said in the pilot, the podcast isn't here to give out solutions and places for you to go dig up. The purpose of the podcast is to discuss the puzzle. It's a place to hear personal accounts of longtime searchers who have dedicated a good deal of their lives looking for these casks. Certainly in the process of doing this, parts of possible solutions and methods will be discussed, which is part of the fun of listening to the whole thing. Perhaps you might pick up a piece of info here or there which might help you understand the puzzle a little bit better, and in the process you get to hear some real-life accounts of people and their journeys into the crazy world of Byron Price. Part of the fun of doing this puzzle is having that breakthrough that you can follow up on, that aha moment. I mean, what fun is there in going to dig a hole in Boston without knowing anything about the puzzle, how it gets solved, how you got to the area, what it's all about? I mean, it's like taking all the pieces of a Rubik's Cube apart or removing the stickers and then reassembling them into the correct sequence. Sure, you've solved it, but you wouldn't have been able to do it within the given constraints of the puzzle itself. Wouldn't a better use of time be to study the puzzle, figure out your own calculated spot instead of some random haphazard spot? Besides making a mess, you might break your wrist or something and sheesh. We wouldn't want that to happen now, would we? Another thing I'm just going to throw out there with all the heightened activity going on with the Facebook groups and message boards, conversation about the secret seems to be at a period high, and not everyone is playing nice in the sandbox. Lots of new people mean lots of new ideas, and in many cases, some of the old-timers and even us journeymen are happy to help out, except when things start to get cocky or nasty. It sort of reminds me of this. The name's Francis Sawyer. Everybody calls me Psycho. Any of you guys call me Francis, and I'll kill you. <laughs> Just made the list, buddy. And I don't like nobody touching my stuff. If I catch any of you guys in my stuff, I'll kill you. Lighten up, Francis. <laughs> You're all in this together. One of these men may save your life one of these days. You understand that? Then again, maybe one of us won't. <laughs> Lighten up, everyone. It's a treasure hunt, not a game of global thermal nuclear war. We can all learn things from new perspectives, but there's no need to antagonize people from either side of the fence. If you're new, there's plenty of work to do and even more of others' work to read about before you can make an informed decision of your own. Questions are good, but if you want to pontificate... There's a wiki site which loves new users and would be happy to sell you Orwellian style on a ready-made spot you can sink your Walmart spade into the next time you're passing through with 20 minutes to spare. Besides, if you're on to something new 
or working hard on your own deciphering of the puzzle, do you really have time to be picking spats with randos online? Work on your stuff. Go dig something up. And then when you have a cask in your hand, post your solution. Now, enough of my own pontifications. Another minute of this and I'll have to join the wiki. From Houston, Texas, our good friend Will House down there. Uh, how are you doing? How's the weather? Uh, weather is typical Houston miserable. Must we start out every podcast with the weather, guys? We really are telling people that we're a little old men just sitting around talking about the weather. Hey, I am an old man. <laughs> we're a little old men talking about treasure hunting. Is How much better is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we could jump right into it. Uh, Will House, why don't you introduce yourself sort of from the treasure hunting perspective and tell us uh, a little bit about how you got involved with The Secret and some of your background with treasure hunting. Sure. And thanks for inviting me. I'm very interested in doing this for posterity and for no other reason. No problem. So in uh, 1982, my birthday is in December, and my mom got me this book called The Secret for a birthday present. And my mom loves to get me puzzles and games for my birthday. She's always gotten me eclectic things. She once bought me a jigsaw puzzle that the first person to solve this jigsaw puzzle could get $5,000 from solving this puzzle. But the puzzle was about some huge number of pieces, like five or 6,000 pieces they were all green, both sides. <laughs> Just to be more fun, there were no straight end pieces. So the puzzle terminated in pieces that looked like the middle of the puzzle. <laughs> so essentially, every piece had you know 7,999 times two combinations for it until you started putting them together. And I worked on this thing for a little while. Then I realized it was probably going to drive me insane. I put it away, and I don't think I ever touched it again. Not even sure where it is anymore. Where do you find things like that? Where were these things when I was a kid? I, how do you find these things? Yeah, I have no idea where my mom used to. Spencer's Gifts back in the 70s and 80s, and they're still around, used to have stuff like that. You could also find them in some bookstores. Strangely enough, even as a kid, that you could order books from school. Once a quarter, you'd... You'd get your dollar fifty, and you'd order some books, and they would come about six months later, and you'd be like, "Oh yeah, I ordered books. I forgot all about that." Yeah, the scholastic, the scholastic book fair. That was everybody's favorite day in school. There you go. You guys got it. And so, you know, I'm talking about in the '60s here. I would order books, being an avid reader even back then. I would always order one or two puzzle books, crossword puzzle or find the clues. I had one called Puzzles, Tricks, and uh, Hints. And it would just be how to make invisible ink, things like that, how to fold paper so that it would be uh, treasure inside of it. Oh, so it's like the PG version of the Anarchist Cookbook. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> I used to love that kind of stuff. My dad would do it with me and my brother. And even from a young age, crossword puzzles and my wife and I talk about the uh, hidden word puzzles, you know, where the words are diagonally and upside down in the middle of a series of other letters. I would just get a book and I do that all day. Stuff like that that coaxed the mind was always interesting to me. I got an early start and I was always interested. And, uh, and I became an engineer, which probably uh, fit right along in the lines of that because uh, engineering is basically solving puzzles to to build things. And even today... I'm a project manager for engineering projects, and it's the same thing. 
I spend all my day uh, helping people work out puzzles on how to build things. Pretty much my whole life has been geared towards that. So this fit in pretty naturally for me. Uh, my wife is an estimator and she also enjoys puzzles. So we enjoy working on these things together. She was one of the first collaborators with me to go looking for the uh, cask. When did the secret start to interfere with your life? Uh, 1982, you know, even back then reading the book. And I was a big reader of uh, Mad Magazine, of National Lampoon, of uh, Heavy Metal. And so, and these guys that, were, that wrote this book all wrote for those same magazines. So I had been familiar with these guys for years. I had been reading Heavy Metal Magazine since the 70s and National Lampoon since the 60s. So I, and Harvard, the Harvard Lampoon. So these guys are familiar to me. Being well-versed in those magazines, did you find that this book kind of slid right in there with the sarcasm and the uh, the style of humor he was putting in and the quirkiness to it? I never had heard of Price before, but I had heard of most of the writers and uh, authors of the book. And I thought that exactly. That First, I thought this was a joke. I thought, oh my God, this is just the biggest joke in the world. It felt real. It felt like somebody had put a lot of effort into it and that these things really did exist. And I was super interested. In 1982, my wife and I got relocated to San Francisco and I put the book in a footlocker. Pretty much uh, went about my life. Moved my stuff into a house that I bought in Huntington Beach and uh, went through my, my stuff, clearing out the garage. And I found the book and this was in 84. And I thought I looked at it again. I thought, I wonder if there was some way I can figure out if any of these things have been found. And I did a little bit of research, but but I couldn't find anything. This was '84, and so it went right back into the footlocker. I think Brian said he kept his in the same place in the in the uh, drawer or in the box or whatever with all of his college stuff. Yeah, exactly, because that's the brain uh, focus that you have when you're in college on that kind of thing, and so it it fits perfectly. So that's where it went. Well, in '90, I went back to grad school, and all of a sudden there was another world out there, a world of bulletin boards. And there was several bulletin board groups that were talking about the secret and about the, the ones that had been found in Chicago. And I thought, wow, this is cool. Uh, I still don't think there's any in Southern California, and I'm not in a position to go looking anywhere. So I'm just going to keep my eye on stuff and keep uh, interest in it. But I really didn't have much I could do with it. And and by 90, I had three kids. I was working full time and going to grad school. So my free time was pretty much next to nothing. Later on in the 90s and early 90s, when, when there was a web browser, uh, for those who don't understand, there was a time when there was no web browsing. It was just all DOS based. So finally, there got to be a web browser. Uh, Netscape was the first one I ever used. And we would write our own batch files in order to load web pages. Then we started hunting around. There were no real aggregators. There was no Yahoo when we first joined in. Uh, we would just hunt around. And, and I found the GeoCities website. And it was pretty lengthy. And there were people who were talking about a lot of theories. Did you see Matt on there? I, di I did see Matt. I saw Catherwood. Um, I saw some other people, but there were just names as people who were posting. And there were a lot of people posting. Mostly what I remember is people publishing uh, spreadsheets on what verses went with what images, because that wasn't fixed. Nobody knew, right? So we knew Chicago and we knew which verse and image they used. And then people started postulating different pages. And for every 
person that postulated one image verse match. There were 10 other people that postulated 10 others. So, <laughs> so nothing's uh, changed. No, no. Now you could get a better handle on a city from uh, a lot of the images than you could from the verses, because a lot of the images had stuff you could find where the verses, as we've all come to find, tend to steer you in the direction. None of the verses were down near me, or none, none of the treasures seemed like they were down near me. I only took a, a cursory uh, interest. And so and I, so then uh, in 97, I moved to Houston for work, uh, where I've been since then, and moved my, my family and my two cars and my 400-some-odd boxes to Houston and packed about 300 of them in the garage when we got here and the, the rest in the house and slowly went through the ones in the garage. I think it took us a year to empty that garage out to the point where I could get two cars in it. And so then uh, this, uh, we, we cleared out all the boxes that were for the house and the ones left in the garage said garage on them. So slowly but surely, I had the job of cleaning out the ones and said garage. And, and let me tell you, uh, working in your garage in Houston in the summer is not a fun time. You know, your garage can get to be 100 degrees and 80% humidity. So you can only do it for short amounts of time. So I finally set in 97, 98, uh, cleared out that garage. And the, one of the last things I found were my old footlockers for college. I opened it up and I found, I found the secret book. And this time, instead of leaving it in the footlocker, I took it out of the footlocker and I put it on my bookshelf in my living room. There it sat. And all of a sudden, I had a little bit of free time, and I started checking the message boards a little more. Things became more and more interesting to me. Uh, I kept up on some of the writings back then. You know, it started to become 99, 2000, 2001, and we weren't making a lot of headway until about 2002. Robert Fox postulated that there were longitude and latitudes in the cities, in the images. Lo and behold, there was one in Houston. And about that time... Catherwood had spent some time going through each one of the images and verses and postulating where she thought they were and what, what matches they made. And she postulated that the verse one image eight combination was going to lead you to Houston and that the 982 was a train in Houston. And all of a sudden, bells and whistles started going off in my head. And that, that's when... About that time, 2000, 2001, 2002 timeframe is when we started doing real serious research. You figured out there was potentially a cask in Houston. You lived in Houston and you had a post that stated the 982 train is where you needed to go. Now, were you familiar with the zoo at the time? Did you know about the train or was this the beginning of your research and where did you go from there? You know, strangely enough, even though I had lived here three, four, five years, really didn't get, I had never been to the zoo. Uh, I say it right out. I'd never been to the zoo at that point in time. Now, sure, I've been to the museums, which were right across the street from the zoo. My kids were older by then. I had an 11, 13, 15-year-old. They weren't that interested in going through the zoo. All of a sudden, in December of 2003, Fox took a notice that I lived in Houston and said, hey, how about wandering down to that 982 train and taking some pictures and let's see what we can find. That's when I really started the discovery work. I mean, I, I had some spare time. Let's see if we can make some sense out of all this. I had seen an email from a guy shortly before that, uh, Martin Vermock, who had posted, hey, none of these treasures are around anymore. You can't get the gems. 
So I don't know why people are, are doing anything on this hunt. So I took a, a wild stab and I contacted the publisher of the book who never answered me. And so I thought, well, you know, this is the age of the internet. I can figure out people's email addresses. So that started me on a two-month adventure of trying to figure out Byron's email address. And, you know, I used the book, very combinations of his work. Back then, uh, there were a lot of different small ISPs. There was NetZero, there was Flash, there was all kinds of places you could get an email address uh, and internet connection. And the biggest one was AOL. So, of course, you have to get it right. So I would email, you know, Byron Price, B Price, BP, BY Price, and I would try AOL, I would try any anything. And finally, on February 29th, 2004, I got an email from Byron Price at AOL.com uh, responding to my request of, are you around? Is this hunt still on? His response to me was, it is me, happy searching. And that was the first email for about a two-year conversation that we had, or a year-and-a-half conversation that we had uh, back and forth about the hunt. He was very nice to me, and I'll talk about that some more. He would usually not respond right away. He had work to do. But if I had a serious question uh, and I didn't make a big deal of it, he would answer it. He told me once not to look someplace that I was going to go look because it wasn't there and it was kind of a public spot. He did tell me the cask was in Houston. And I just asked him straight out, hey, I could do other things with my spare time. Can you confirm uh, one is in Houston? And he said, I, can't, I will say it's in Houston. And that got me very interested and very excited. That started us off on our quest to find something in the image that made sense. And that took quite a while. So on by, by the time Super Bowl Sunday, in 2004 rolled around brian had already found his cask that completely energized me uh, my middle son was also interested in this kind of thing and so the two of us communicated a lot about it january in 2004 i decided to go off hunting by myself just to get the lay of the land remember the super bowl back then was much earlier so it was i think the second week of january and so i just wandered around and a couple of things that i found were the saint paul's united methodist church which has crenellated towers and looks like a fortress north of herman park and i found the glacell school of art which the building is made up of bricks that are glassy they look very uh, white reflective and they look like ice in my mind, I could say, well, Fortress North, cold as glass, that these are things to get you from one place to another. They're iconic. They're right north of Herman Park, and they could get you moving in the right direction. But I was really focused on the columns in the image that had the horizontal seams in them, the one with the rhino and the camel, because that's unusual. All the columns around Herman Park, around that Houston area, have fluted vertical type divisions. You know, they're Roman columns or they're Greek columns, and they're not, they're not even formed with horizontal divisions in them. They're formed from bigger blocks of whatever they're made of. And I looked at every column in the area and it was shortly after that that uh, my wife started joining me on weekends, and we had Fridays off. So we would wander down there 
two times a month, maybe three times a month even, and just go wander around. And we would spend hours wandering around looking for anything that, that matched. We found the Japanese Friendship Pavilion, which didn't seem to fit as Friendship South because I didn't feel like it was far enough south. Nevertheless, it was a good clue. The train, the small train, certainly we found the 982 train. That was easy. We would walk around the zoo over and over and over again, and we really couldn't find anything. So you were just finding scattered clues here and there and weren't able to put together any kind of uh, cohesive path to it all. But you were finding a few things, right? I found enough to know that it was in the general area. Herman Park, uh, because of the Melville quote, the train, certainly, and the fact that you could start north at the United Methodist Church, past the Glacelle School of Art, and then keep going, and you would end right up at the 982 train. So I'm thinking, okay, that makes sense. He's giving you directions from an iconic location to the treasure, starting far and then as you go through the verses, getting smaller and smaller and smaller steps. And so that philosophically made sense to me, and I, I like that. But once I hit the park through the wood, I was lost. I mean, we spent a lot of time looking in the wood in Herman Park, looking for maybe four trees that are alike. I used my rod from Home Depot, which is a, a, a sprinkler post poker, basically a piece of rebar with a, a point on the end of it and a handle to poke around in Herman Park. And back then there weren't a lot of people keeping watch on you, so you could do a little more digging then. And I never did find anything that even resembled a cask or anything, any cask findings. Or I did find several areas with four trees and would poke around in the middle of those, but it just didn't seem like there were enough clues from the verse to get us anywhere at that point. So I really wanted to hunt further. So. At that point, one weekend, my middle son and I decided we would just go take a walk through the zoo. And as we're walking through the zoo, we walked through the whole zoo, but as we started walking through the zoo at the time, and keep in mind, by this time, the zoo had been reconfigured quite a bit, but still you could, uh, you could feel like you were going in the direction he wanted you to go. The, the, the zoo was very woody back then. Uh, it was very open, so you could feel like you're wandering through the woods. You would see animals all over the place. And there was a lion pen south of the entrance. So as you're walking south, you're continuing south, you could pass the lion pen. You would have no lion fears because the lion was in a pen. If you just walk straight, though, right through the middle of the zoo, you could find uh, the lion. The lions would be there. Uh, as you did that, you would pass a area that was uh, a watery uh, feature in the middle of the zoo. And sitting right in the middle of that watery feature was Brownie the elf. I can remember looking at him thinking, oh my God, that's the djinn from the verse. And later on, I went home and read in the text, he talks about the different fairies and he talks about the djinn and the brownie and I don't know that there's actually a fairy called a brownie or not. I've never been able to find it. But I always thought that was super coincidental that I believe the djinn from the image is Brownie the Elf. 
And I've always felt that way because the hat, one of the reasons was because the hat that Brownie wears looks like the scarf that the gin wears. It's almost the back of it, the shape of it is almost identical. And he's, and Brownie, when I, when you, you could see him was clearly part of the fountain. Now, what I didn't know, Brian Hill told me was that Brownie used to be in the children's zoo. So more on that later. Okay. So you walk through the zoo you go past the lions, you come to this feature, you see Brownie, that sends you down the research path on figuring that out. How did you end up coming to conclude that you needed to get into the children's zoo? Was it the small of scale uh, reference or was that about the small train? The ambiguity in the puzzle is so maddening that you can create several theories about where things are and they could all sound perfectly plausible. That's for somebody else to work out. But uh, yeah, <laughs> for me, as my son and I were walking through uh, past the lions, if you keep going straight south, you dead end into the entrance gate of the children's zoo. And at that point in time, it was in disrepair. It had not been used in years. The gate was locked. Actually, it was just a swing gate, but it had a chain link on it with a lock. And you could look in and you could see that it was in disrepair. And I remember looking at it and looking at my son and thinking, we need to get in there. Let's figure out a, a way to get in there. So as we were walking back, I stopped in the office and said, uh, who is the, a person to talk to about coming in and taking photos of the zoo and the children's zoo? And she led me to... Uh, Brian Hill, and he wasn't in that day, but I got some contact information from him, and it was shortly after that that I contacted Brian. By the way, Brian is the voice of the the podcast, our announcer voice for the podcast, just so there's a frame of reference there. Brian is the publicity director for the for the zoo for many years. And he's a fairly sane individual, as far as we all know, and so he's minding his business at his job, and you come in. And you say, ask him what? I say, uh, Brian, I would like to talk to you about possibly investigating something that might be buried in the children's zoo. And we set up a time for me to come down and talk to him. And I don't know why he agreed to talk to me, to be honest with you. I was cognizant of the fact that I sounded like a kook. <laughs> we all do when we... Yes. <laughs> so I had, I had done some research on the zoo and my middle son and I had gone to the Houston library and we found some old pictures of the zoo of the children's zoo. And you'll see a lot of that as part of my research that's posted on the websites. So I had those photos, which I printed out. I had the book, I had my middle son and I also had my father because my eldest son was uh, graduating about this time from high school and we were having a party and my parents came out from California to spend a week with us. And I said, come with me to the zoo to meet this guy. So uh, I think that in our next episode, Brian can give you his perspective on it. But I think that by bringing my, my family with me and having all this research, I appeared to be less than a kook than I probably am. And I, I think bringing my father brought some credibility that I wasn't completely off the deep end. 
So Brian became interested in it then. Brian is a very uh, open-minded and thoughtful guy. Being a publicity director, he smelled a story, and that's all he ever wanted out of this was the story. He said, yeah. He goes, I'll take you on a tour. So that day we went on a tour of the children's zoo, and the first thing I discovered was the aqua tunnel. Now, the aqua tunnel is the first thing that you come upon when you go into the zoo, the children's zoo. You go through the gate, directly to your left is the aqua tunnel. What the aqua tunnel is, is a very ingenious method of looking at fish and aquatic creatures uh, that was built in the late 70s, early 80s. And what you do is you go down a series of steps into a ante room and above you is a plexiglass tunnel filled with, with water that the fish could swim around in. And the it was shaped in a circle. So you would uh, walk straight and you could veer to the right or to the left in a circle. So if you were standing in the ante room looking up, the water in front of you would veer to the right and to the left. Having Spoken to Byron a few times and having read uh, many of his graphic novels that he published, I realized Byron was a word guy, that word guys pick words on purpose. He didn't say uh, the water flows. He didn't say the water splashes. He didn't say anything that would make you think this is a fountain. He used the words in the sky, the water veers. And that's specific to me. That was a very important line to lead me to the zoo, to the children's zoo, to the aqua tunnel. Because as you went around in a circle around where this aqua tunnel dropped you off, it exited you. And where it exited you was right about the center or just to the right or left of center of the uh, four lands. Now, the children's zoo is a roughly circular area with four distinct, I'll call them lands or pens, where they put the animals. And there's North America, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And they're all clustered in a, uh, like a clover, a four-leaf clover, with an area, walkway down the middle, and a walkway in between each lands, and then a walkway to the left and the right of the lands, if you will. And you can see these on some of the maps that I've posted. If you exited the aqua tunnel to the right and walked out, the next words to the verse are small of scale, step across. Well, after you've dumped out of the aqua tunnel, if you look directly to your left is a bridge that crosses over a moat area that runs through the children's zoo, which was dry when I got there. But that basically you were walking over a small scale bridge. It was only about six or seven feet across. And once you've done that, you could be in the center of the zoo, of the children's zoo, with the four lands around you. And I took that to mean that you were into the center of the area, not necessarily the center of four specific things that you had to go look for. So a lot of people say, well, I got to go find four trees or four fence posts or four you know, things that are in a circle to look in the center of them. I never took it that way. I always took it to mean that this was the center 
of the children's zoo and you had the four lands around you. And that was a signifier to me that we were in the right place. The center of four continents. Now, why don't we talk a minute about the pole with the horizontal markings in it and the uh, North America land for a second? If you continue to walk south from the center of the uh, four lands, if you will, the center of the children's zoo, you'll run right into a, a little area that's built up, has tile on the bottom of it and a pedestal on it. And on top of that pedestal, Brian told me that that's where Brownie the Elf sat. You know, that was, to me, a monumentous moment where I realized that this has had to have been where Price was. It's too coincidental. It's led me right to uh, essentially the gin in the photo. And so if you keep walking, now you've dead-ended because you, you're right up against the auditorium. You can go, you, at this point, you're looking south. You can go left. You can go right. If you go right to the land directly to your right is North America. So as we walked around North America, the entrance to the North America land had two poles with a, a bar across them, a wooden bar across them that read North America with a stylized cutout eagle or hawk, could be a hawk, uh, a wooden hawk on the picture, on the uh, board. And the two poles that were holding North America up were Indian totem poles. And they were, to me, exact matches for the two poles, almost exactly proportioned distance-wise as in the image. It was uh, serendipity to me. I, at that point, I felt like we were there. We could stop looking outside, that it had to be in the CZ. Yeah. Right. We're talking about, the from the image, the, the pole of the rhino on top. That's correct. And I've seen that matchup before, George. Have you uh, have you seen that matchup uh, of the two posts before? Yeah, yeah, and it's perfect. Um, I, I feel like this is a good time to point out that this, like the solves in Cleveland and the solves in Chicago, they were exact. They they weren't, you know, sort of like something else. They were they were pretty well exact. I agree. I've seen the the matchup, and it, it's dead on. So, what I tell people who've been skeptical about the children's zoo in the past okay, if we're not supposed to be there, why do we find something that's exactly matched up right in the middle of the children's zoo in the center of four lands? So, I mean, as much as someone wants to not believe that that's uh, the location, I'll say this, we had to have been there at some point. There was something for us to see there. So you either had to go through it or that's where it is. One of the two things, right? And the and the solves that I've seen for Houston that don't involve the Cle the, the children's zoo, they're so weird. Like we've got use, people using Photoshop filters to bring out what maybe kind of looks like numbers or maybe kind of looks like letters, and none of this stuff makes as much sense as hey, look, there's a pole in the painting, and it's you know right over there. You can check it out. They look the exact same. Um, so yeah, I think all of us though have putzed around with stuff like it, it's okay to do that. I think that they're going to find a dead ends at a lot of those theories on manipulating the image. Wilhouse, what were, were some of the strange things that you tried to do uh, with the image? Uh, just aside from turning it upside down, which we all do. Did you ever try any any funny stuff with uh, trying to coax a clue out of it by using some means or method? Yeah, that's that's an interesting conversation. So I had a scanner. Uh, I had a scanner available to me, a color scanner at the time. And so I did put my book on 
I'm a scanner. And then I, I did it at the highest resolution possible and I blew it up and I looked in the trees for, for hours and days and days to see if I could find stuff. I swear that in that tree, there's the word zoo. Now, some people are telling me that I'm crazy, but it sure looks like it to me. And I've cut it out and pasted it to people. Also, there's also, uh, some of the leaves, uh, are uh, the same as the trees in the, in the children's zoo. And there's a, there's red oak leaves and there's the larkspur leaves, which are nowhere else around, but there's a larkspur tree in this children's zoo. Uh, and remember that not only are the two North America totems the same as the columns in the same position, the elf fountain is exactly in the same position as the jinn compared to those two columns in the image. So not only do we have the addresser of where to stand to look for the two totem columns, we also see that we have to be able to see the gin uh, fountain, which is brownie, which, by the way, had a, uh, a flat plate on it that people would throw coins on that he was holding a plate in it. And then coming out of that plate was a little spout of water. And I use that word specifically because that's what it was. It came out, if you, if you find some of the old pictures, it came out like a drinking fountain spout, you know, just a, a line of water that came out of his hand and impinged directly on the plate. And looking at him and investigating it, they used a tube, a fish pump tube with a little fish pump pump to pump the water from the base up through his hand and out. So there's several places in the children's zoo that could be spouts. I mean, the definition of a spout is an exit of water. The aqua tunnel had a couple of spouts where they recirculated water. There was a small spout by the uh, llama pen, which I'll get to in a minute. There are spout. Every water feature in Houston has some kind of spout or water shooting up in it. It's not an uncommon thing at all. That's right. But I think it's a coincidence that the elf fountain was a spout type of a fountain and not your just water trickling down as most water features are. So you're saying that this played into not only the perspective clue being that the, the fountain was in between the two pillars, but it also played to the, the spout clue, the last clue of the, of the verse. I believe so. So then we had to, to take a look around and try to see if we could find stuff that matched from the book. And at that point, you, you're groping because you really have no direct hard evidence. Uh, there's anecdotal information that there is a white llama in the llama pen, which is right next to North America, that was named Snowflake. Uh, we were never able to find that in the zoo's database, even though they did have uh, names for the, for the animals in the database. But uh, according to John Donahoe, who was the CZ director back in the 70s and 80s, who I'm hoping to be on the next podcast, next half of this, will say that that was his remembrance that there was a llama named Snowflake and that the children's zoo wasn't as diligent as putting names in the, in the registry of names as the rest of the zoo was because people, the animals were in and out. So would they have a poster? Like, a, Would it be posted the name of the animal in the children's zoo, in the petting zoo? Uh, the zoo did have little blocks by some of the pen areas to give you information about the animals and their name. Okay, so Snowflake potentially could have been written on a plaque somewhere. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Yes. And there were camels 
in the children's zoo area. They had uh, baby camels were in that area. There were no rhinos that I know of. There were areas that you could get into that had other exotic animals. And we try to link the verses to a, a culture. And the jinn is an Arabian culture. That's Saudi Arabia. That's considered to be Asia. You know, the uh, Middle Eastern area is, is considered to be Asian. So there was an Asian land there. These were all things that led me to believe we're in the right area. One of the last things that we discovered, two things more that we discovered, that Brian would just take me around in his little golf cart so I could see things. And there one day we went by the maintenance yard and lying on the ground in the maintenance yard was a pole with a globe on it. And I have a picture of it somewhere. I'm sure I posted it. And I said, Brian, what is that? And he goes, oh, that's the old lamp posts that were in the children's zoo. And I said, what? You're telling me that the lamp posts in the zoo were poles with globes on them? And he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, some of the globes are still there hanging off the party room, which is the building directly across from North America, hanging from the party room. They use the same globe feature for their lights. Did you, when you saw these globes, did they have the base on them still, or were they just poles laying on the ground? They were just poles laying on the ground. And I asked Brian about that. And I even read his email response today as I went over my emails for this. And he said that there was artwork that they got in the zoo that they would put around the base of the poles for artistic use, if you will, and that these bases that they strapped around the base of the pole looked exactly like the poles with those bases. And they were artistic. They had uh, various designs on them. So it's very possible that one of them had the same design as we see in the image. I've always debated whether those bases are bases of poles or if you flip them upside down, they do look like planters somewhat. They do. Um, Brian says that they look exactly like the bases that he had, and he remembers them because he hated them because they were always falling apart, and he was always having to fix them. So, so hey, that's something that we could talk about, Brian, with Brian some more. But one more thing that I felt was important, and I, that's, I've had posted uh, pictures of this also. There's uh, directly north of the Children's Zoo is like a grassy area where you could have picnics or just uh, relax with your family. In this grassy area, there were hills. And the photo that I have, the hills are a dead ringer for the dunes in image eight. And the trees that are there are in the exact location as in that image. You're talking about the berms in the, in the back of image eight. That is exactly what I'm talking about. And there's they're, the trees are in the same location as those poles in the background of image eight. And now this is the exit of the children's zoo or is this in the children's zoo? Outside of the children's zoo, directly north of the children's zoo. And did you notice any other features in that area that might have uh, been a clue? No, because by, by the time I got there, that was all there was 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 a grassy area with the with the dunes and the, even all the trees weren't there. So this was based on later on i found some old images and the image matched up very well the, you couldn't see it by just going through the zoo anymore because they had cleared the trees out 
but the dunes were still there. And then I asked Brian about the dunes and he said, yeah, that was more pronounced back in the eighties. So that's when we look for uh, historical images in the Houston library. That's one of the things we look for. And I was able to find an image of those dunes or, or those hills. And I have posted that picture. So you can see in that picture. How long did you spend at the library looking, doing historical research? Hours uh, for many days. Probably probably went back there four or five times to different places in the libraries. A couple times with my son, a couple times by myself. I, at that point, I had to get a library card for it, a special exhibit for it, because it was down in the basement area. And you couldn't take out more than one box of pictures at a time. So I would sit there and take photos of everything in the box, and then I put the box back and I'd get another box and go through it. And there were hundreds and hundreds of boxes. So I went through everything that I could. I have no idea if all that's still there. And I went through a couple different libraries in Houston uh, that had these images. John Donahoe has recently told me that he still has a boxes somewhere full of Im- uh, slides, 35 millimeter slides from back then. And I've asked him to take another shot at Uh, seeing if he can find those. Maybe we'll find some more pictures from the 80s. Yeah, certainly Houston is one of the places where we don't have a lack of uh, documentation. We found uh, videos of people taking uh, trips to the zoo and filming it, and you have an enormous amount of pictures that you've contributed to the group and to the uh, message boards in general, and there's probably still more out there. It seems to be very well documented, that area. So, uh, we should be able to track down what we're looking for if we know what we're looking for. In theory, I just I think it's important to 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 remind people out there that are listening that, that the reason that we've come so close in Houston is because of the pictures. So if you have pictures, if you can find pictures, or if you just want pictures, uh, a li- the library is a good resource. Or your historical your local historical center would have just gobs and gobs of pictures of whatever you're looking for. That is a good point. If you have old family photos from family vacations or trips you've taken, maybe you remember visiting uh, one of the suspected cities or even one of the parks that have been discussed in the past and you want to scour, do some hunting one day, go through the old photos, check and see if you have anything. You never know what might turn up. And uh, it's always a good resource to check those things. Wilhouse, while you were going to the library and doing research, you found some old maps from the 70s and 80s, and I was curious if you had found anything in those maps that related to the image or anything in the verse. Unfortunately, not specifically. Uh, the, the None of the maps were detailed enough, but even so, they were not at ground level where you could turn around and look at different things. Even Even the entrances to the four lands weren't really shown. They were just stylized entrances. So I I never was able to use the maps except for the fact of thinking that the McGovern Lake looked like a camel back then. I have to admit that. But also to the fact that the small uh, train was in a completely different area than it was back in the 80s. So a lot of people want to use that train as a marker and they can't because it's really been moved. At that point, I had already decided I was going to focus on the children's zoo. I had picked out a location right in the center of the four lands that I really liked. You could see everything from there. And I just was hyper-focused on in the center of Four Lake. And in the center of Four Lake, there was a, a dirt area that had been concreted over. And I thought, wow, 
if this had been concreted over later, it could be under this concrete. And the concrete had a couple of holes in it. So I got a uh, post hole digger and some, and some shovels and myself and my, that was when my dad was here and Brian and John Donahoe, we all met there and we all took turns digging under this concrete and we couldn't find anything there because we couldn't get that deep down. We can only get about a foot and a half deep. I emailed BP and I told him exactly where it was. And I said that I was using the clause in the book to uh, be able to tell you exactly where I think the cask is. And the clause in the book says that you'll take that information and let us know if it's there and you can go reclaim it, which even you can't do. But at that point, I could know if it was there. And he told me, I'll go look. Basically, what I have come later to find out was his envelope of photos that wasn't in the in the bank that he thought it was. Just the uh, apparently the gems were there. He was thinking that the envelope with all the photos is it was in there, and apparently they were not. I re- re- emailed him a few times, saying, "Did you ever get a chance to go find it?" And he kept emailing back, saying, "I'm going to get there and go look." But I never got word back that he did. And my guess is he never he couldn't find the photos. So at that point, we were getting desperate. We were trying to figure out where this thing was, and I managed to uh, wheedle a local architectural engineering company to let me borrow a ground penetrating radar. So my wife and I went out there on a Friday and spent all day trying to go through all the dirt areas that were available with the GPR. And then we took the data back to the uh, owner of the unit and he circled the areas where it could be disturbances. So we dug in some of those areas and mostly we found pipes and conduit, broken rocks, and other construction debris. Even though I know a lot of people like to use GPR, and it does have its value, and certainly the units are a lot better now than they were back then, if you're digging in an area that has other things in it besides just dirt, you could have some troubles. Or spend all day. Or spend all day, yeah, Speaking yeah. of which, I've got a, that's, that's why I have a giant bag full of sewer pipe. I, I do have I do have one question. Uh, in a lot of these paintings, we're finding maps of you were talking about maps before. In a lot of the, these paintings, we're finding maps of parks or outlines of cities or outlines of states. Is there anything in the Houston painting that alludes to the park or the city or the state at all? There's on the ground as a shadow of one of the columns. There's what could be interpreted as a stylized. A sideways image of Texas. It, it kind of looks like Texas. I'll give you that. Somebody had to point it out to me because I didn't really see it. But yeah, I think it kind of looks like Texas. So I, I think that does get you there. Certainly the most important is the longitude and latitude of Houston is in the tree. The 95, 96, uh, 26, that's dead center of Houston. And so that did clear us into the fact that Houston was in that photo or in the image. So uh, I'm not sure I need more than that. I, I think what George was getting at was the reflection pool seems to be a dead on match for the uh, light globe pole for one thing. And we did point out that the camel, the, the shape of the camel was uh, very similar to McGovern Lake uh, before it was changed. So we were just kind of examining whether any other maps or any kind of, uh, 
similarities occurred from a map or from a park map or from uh, anything you would see from an overhead view uh, based on what is also in the image? Nothing that I know of, and I'm not sure about the reflecting pool, the monument at the head of it, because the monument was at the other end of the pool back in the 80s. The reflecting pool was a lot smaller and more square back then. So it's, you know, it's stylized. It could be, but I never needed that as a, a clue to get where I was. But certainly if it is a clue, it does help you get to the area. Well, Wilhouse, let me ask you this. How close to the children's zoo is McGovern Lake? McGovern Lake is just north of the 982 train. So it's certainly a marker of the Herman Park. And it's very clear image of Herman Park, but it, it wouldn't get you to the children's zoo directly. You would have to keep following the clues. But in terms of being a marker of the park, it certainly could be. Would you say that if you were looking, say, on an overhead view, that it would be within 500? You know, it's a big lake. It goes quite for quite a ways around the park. Would you say that one part of the lake would be, say, within three to 500 yards of where the children's zoo was in, inside the zoo? No, the entire lake is north of the entire zoo. Okay. The zoo runs north to south, and the children's zoo being at the southern tip of the entire zoo. Okay, so as to date, you haven't found anything else in the Houston image that could have corresponded to uh, anything in Herman Park or in the zoo that would match up as sort of a park or path map. No, I have not, which is why I think that he did a better job leading you to the zoo in, in this verse because he didn't have a good map to put in the image. So that, that's my theory. So you go out with the GPR, you dig a few places, and nothing comes up. Now where are you at with your, your search? What, what year is this, by the way, after you've, you've gone through all these steps? Are we still 2004, 2005, or are we later now? This whole adventure started the first of 2004. We're now at the end of the first quarter of 2005. And so I've been digging on and off for over a year. With myself, my wife, my son, my one of my friends came with me quite a bit. Pretty much exhausted the fact that we'd been digging everywhere, and I'm running out of time. And some of these discoveries were in pieces, right? The dunes were discovered later. The globes were discovered later. Brownie, where he was, was discovered. So these are all in pieces, and they you had to add them all up and understand them all, and that took that took time to do. So finally, in early 2005, when we were seriously digging in the southern tip of the Children's Zoo, and I communicated with John Donahoe quite a bit, and I asked him, where do you think friendship is in the zoo or the Kerman Park area? And he said, well, you know, I used to drive on the road behind the zoo every day, and there was a big sign there that said Friendship Wood, and that was next to the hospital. And... I said, well, that would be a great descriptor for Friendship South. It would bracket the children's zoo or bracket the zoo between the 982 and Friendship South. So at that point, I pretty much decided that it was in the southern part of the children's zoo. That's when I started to really dig in that area, concentrated in that area, and did that until about July of 2005. And I, I was just frustrated just about given up. So what I decided to do is I decided to call on, had not been communicating with Byron about the uh, treasure for eight or 10 months because 
So after Andy's fine, he got inundated with communications about the hunt. And he emailed me at one point and said, I'm sorry, I just can't answer any more questions. I'll only respond to a found cask. And I emailed him back and said that I understood completely that this has been important to me and that his communication to me was very important to me, including our communications, not about the hunt. We communicated about books that I've read, books that he was publishing. We would just have a personal communication for months and months about other things because we both had the same love of books and graphic novels. So I told him I appreciated it, and he thanked me for being so kind because some other people were not as kind to him. And so I stopped communicating with him. Finally, in July of 2005, after the GPR, after I had been digging, after bending two poles in the hard dirt, I used Photoshop to stitch together what I call a stitched version of the image to a panoramic picture of the children's zoo back by where the North America columns and the elf fountain and the globes were, the globe light poles were. And that I posted online. And I emailed him and I said, final chance. And it turned out that uh, the zoo had decided to bulldoze the children's zoo and create a gorilla habitat there. And they were going to build on top of the children's zoo and they were going to start construction work the next couple of months. Brian basically warned me that we're getting near the end. So I emailed Byron and it said, final plea. I explained to him the children's zoo was going to be destroyed. I told him this was the last chance if it's in the zoo, children's zoo, to, to get the cask out. I reminded him that he helped the guys in Chicago find their cask when they were close. And I basically pleaded with him, is it there? Uh, should I keep looking? Can you help me? He responded by saying that it would not be a waste of time to dig there, that uh, he just couldn't guarantee anything. Uh, he would go eventually go look for pictures and try to, to help me. The last day I communicated with him was uh, July 8th, 2005. Uh, I learned on the 11th of 2005 by a post from Andy that Byron had died on the 9th. The day after I contacted him and he re replied to me, he had passed away in a car accident. And uh, that was a very big emotional blow to many of us. But I felt like I had a personal communication and friendship with the man. And it was I felt a deep sadness at his at his passing. He's about to give you the photo. He's he concedes to helping you. And he says, hey, look, I'm going to go try and find this photo for you. You know, hang tight. I'll get back to you. And then the next day, he passes away. That's exactly right. And, and he tells me that I'm probably in the right spot. It's not a waste of time to dig there. You know, because before he had told me, no, don't dig there if it was wrong. And, and it was interesting. When I started asking him questions about areas in the CZ, he shut up. He, this is even before he told me that he wouldn't answer any more questions. Uh, I started asking him about specific locations around the CZ and specific things. And he just, he, he would, he finally responded and saying, I can't answer any more of your questions about the zoo. And I thought, ah, okay, we've, we've hit a nerve and that nerve is because we're in the right spot or the right area. Okay. So 
let me let me just pause here for a second and get George's opinion on this because I th- I find this interesting. Based on everything that we've found out now about uh, Brian's interactions with the man and uh, Andy and Brian's personal interactions with him and now Mark's uh, emails and we we also know of some other personal communications. I think Robert had some with him as well. Some other people. Based on everything that you have heard from everyone else and at all the emails we've seen, do you think that this is a case of he forgot or do you think this is a case of he was playing around messing with people? You know, I could see forgetting an exact location after this many years. I can see like uh, him thinking, you know, I went to Herman Park. I went to a children's zoo, but I don't remember exactly where in the children's zoo, you know, like to a, to a one by one square. I could see that. But if the man's going to tell you it's not a waste of time to dig there, he knows you're in, you know, the right place. He did the same thing with Chicago. He He's not an idiot. He's not like he doesn't have Alzheimer's. He doesn't forget. But he told you know. Wilhouse not to dig in a specific spot in the past. Right. And then he says it won't be a waste of time to dig. There. Well, of course, it's not. Anytime you can learn something from digging an empty hole or finding a cask, you come away with a little more knowledge than you had. Sure, it's not going to be a waste of time. I don't think I don't think that's what he was getting at, in my personal opinion. I, others will differ on that. Well, I think that you have to understand the fervor of the time in that we were terrified that they were going to start ripping apart the zoo and we weren't going to be able to get to it anytime, anytime soon or anytime ever again. You know, so I even, uh, you know, made the, the subject of my email a final plea. You know, he, he didn't even have to respond. He hadn't been responding in some of the other areas. So, by the way, I do have another email from him before he said it was not a waste of time to dig there. And I, I have the email up. I, I'm going to read I'm going to read you a little bit of it just so you can get the context. I said, the children's zoo is being renovated and bulldozed over. I only have a few months to find the cask. After that, if it is in the children's zoo, it will be destroyed and I will be heartbroken. Can you at least confirm whether I am in the right location or not? We found the original article on the cask found in Chicago and noticed that you did originally advise the Chicago finders that they were right. If I am in the wrong location and the clues of the cask are gone and the hunt is over anyways, any information that you would be willing to give up would be greatly appreciated. And he responded right away. It might be there. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I mean, I can only laugh at that statement. How, how much more noncommittal can you get? Well, he didn't say no. That's where I went with that. The man talks in riddles, definitely. Even in Chicago, he didn't tell them exactly where it was. What did he? He said, uh, "You're in the right spot. I don't see why you can't find it." He wouldn't give him an exact location, but he'd tell you, "You know, you're in you're in the right area. Go find it." So it, that's what that's how I take it. Wouldn't be a waste of time to dig there in the same way. Let me say this: When I first communicated with him back, my very first communication with him, and he said, "Yes, it's me." And we talked a little bit after that. He was surprised that people were still interested. He didn't get it. He was had no interest in this hunt. He had a publishing empire. He was publishing graphic novels. He was publishing comic books. He was publishing children's stories. He was running a business. He was in his 50s. He had this was a thing he did when he was a kid. He had no interest whatsoever. And he thought it was funny that people were still even looking for it. 
And it was my belief that if Andy had never found the Cleveland cask, that he would have just been happy for this thing to die away. He would have rather it just disappeared. Even though when Andy did find it, he was very uh, gracious and they had good conversation. This was not his focus. This was something he did when he was a kid, maybe to help with his career. I don't know. But uh, it, it, this was not something that he was interested in. So I think that this was all kind of confounding to him. Then people were emailing him and bugging him. And apparently some people were not very nice to him about this subject. And this was a great bother to him, which is why I stopped communicating with them. So when I did go back to communicate with him, and again, the name of the, the title of this email, the subject was a final plea before it's too late. You know, he, he responded right away. That was unheard of for him. He rarely responded to me right away. And then when I emailed him again with the photo and he said it would not be a waste of time to dig there, I took that in context. And I believe the context was he could not remember where it was, but he remembered being there. And that was all I needed to confirm that it was there somewhere. So as a final desperate measure to try to find it, Brian Hill and I managed to convince, or actually Brian did, managed to convince the maintenance guy who ran the heavy equipment in the children's zoo, bulldoze a section of the children's zoo where I I was most thinking that it was. And so we spent the day bulldozing this area. And in hindsight, even though that was a great idea and lots of fun, the amount of dirt that thing brought up, <laughs> I recognize now that it could have been, it could have been in a, a lump of dirt that I just missed because it was, it's so small. Oh. I broke the cast. I smashed it a million pieces. I did spend a lot of time going through the dirt. There were no pieces of plexiglass. There were no pieces of ceramic. I had nothing that even hinted at the fact that it was there. We basically pushed the dirt back in the hole and moved on. I just want to give you props. When Wilhouse goes, he goes hard. Like we get an idea and we get a shovel. He gets an idea and he gets a bulldozer. (laughs) I get a bulldozer, man. Wait, wait, that's not the end of it, I don't think. That is not the end of it. So we, as we're pushing the dirt back in the the hole we made, we busted a head off a sprinkler. Uh, If you've ever been anywhere with that's been piping is 30 or 40 years old, you'll know, even if you know where the turnoff is, that it's hard to turn off. And so we found the valve to turn it off, but we couldn't get it, couldn't get the valve turned all the way because it had too much crud in it. And the sprinkler sprinkler system just kept pumping out water and it was like six o'clock at night. And, and <laughs> I, it got to the point where it was getting over my shoes and Brian looked at me and he said, get out of here. And so I took off, I took off <laughs> and they had to go call. This was, I think, a Sunday. They had to go call one of the plumbers to come on a Sunday and get one of those weird uh, keys that you use to turn spigots in the hole. <laughs> yeah. And Brian said at this point, the water was up to his, his calves. And he was afraid. They had to go check on the elephants to make sure the elephants outside the CZ didn't get flooded. And apparently, because they had actually turned the land over to the gorilla contractor uh the the zoo didn't actually own that part of the land (laughs) so they they got called on the carpet quite a bit now hopefully brian will be able to tell you a little more of that story but uh, (laughs) to quote brian no harm no foul they got it turned off there was no damage but they got called on the carpet for uh, digging in the zoo 
Ryan told me that he would keep an eye on the contractor and he talked to the contractor about, hey, if you ever you're digging and you come up with this, any plexiglass or ceramic, please let us know. And that contractor was like, yeah, sure, sure. Sure, sure right. <laughs> yeah, you're crazy. And uh, and we were, I was known as the net, the netty guy who uh, digs in the children's zoo by the uh, zoo keepers who they always had to come to back to the children's zoo where a lot of paperwork was stored. So they'd see me digging back there and I'd wave high and they'd wave high. And it was a crazy time, you know, basically a year and a half, uh, almost every weekend that was the weather was permissible. Uh, we'd be back there digging in the zoo at the end. All we did was, uh, we had blisters and a flood. All right. Well, let's, I, we're going to have to do uh, a two part episode on Houston. Obviously we were planning on doing that. Um, let me get to just one more question before we wrap up this part one with Wilhouse. And that's the, the big question that I think everybody wants to ask or hear commentary on. And that is, uh, would he, did he, was it put in a place that closes what did he put casks in places you have to pay to get into, such as the Fountain of Youth? Did he put a cask in the zoo, which closes at a certain time period, and expect you to go in there and dig it up? Now, one one thing I don't know is, did you have to pay to get into the zoo? Not in 1982, no. Okay, so the Children's okay. Zoo was free, but it did close, did it? I know we'll get, we'll get into this with John and, and Brian, but uh, it did close, did it not? It closed, but it wasn't really... Uh, unaccessible. For one thing, there was a back gate that led out to the street. And that was one of the areas where the construction guys would go in and out of. So in the 80s, there was a lot of construction in the area, a lot of construction in the zoo proper and in Herman Park. And they would have construction guys walking in and out. And really, we need to ask this question of John Donahoe, because he was physically there. But I'll capsulate it. I asked John to, to his face, John, a guy with a with a shovel and a hard hat and a bag, could he have walked in the back of the children's zoo, dug a hole, dropped the box, and walked out with any problems? And John said, no, nobody would take a second notice. And back then, the children's zoo was kind of separated from the regular zoo in that it didn't have its own security. And a lot of times the gates were left open because people would forget to close them. And so, yeah, I think that at the time, if you didn't know that this thing was all going to become uh, a much bigger park and you were thinking that everything was going to get dig up in, within six months, I've heard articles or read articles that he said he thought this thing would be over in six months, then yeah, you could have snuck back there if you knew exactly where it was, dug a hole, and been gone before anybody noticed you were there. George? Uh, I, I, still, I still can't get over it. I don't think he would have buried it somewhere that, that wasn't wide open at night i don't think he would have buried it somewhere that uh you would have had to pay to get in but uh, obviously you didn't have to pay to get into the children's zoo i just i i don't see it now i mean i have to take that and also take that you know he, he sent you an email that basically said it's right there so i don't i don't know i just i can't wrap my head around that. so don't be don't be confused there was no admission for the regular zoo either there was no actual gate to the regular zoo there was a one of those sliding type gates that they would close sometimes late at night. But you could walk into that zoo for free anytime you wanted. You could walk all the way back to the children's zoo. You could meet somebody in the back. There was a lot of ways in. Now, I grant you, it would have been scary as heck to go into there and, and dig in the children's zoo at night. 
but you could have done it. The, the animals were all locked up, so you wouldn't have anything bother you. So what you're saying, basically, when when you say it was closed, is like the zoo that we have here in Jacksonville. It's it's still sort of accessible. You can wander around, but the animals are just put away after a certain amount of time. That's correct. Okay. I understand. That makes more sense. See, I could see that. I could see you're just wandering around part of the zoo or part of the park. The zoo's wide open. You can just walk right in, but the animals are put away. I could see burying it there. What do you say to those who feel that it's not in the zoo area, but is in Herman Park and are looking in those areas there? I say good luck. (laughs) Best of luck. I, I don't deny anybody the opportunity to spend some time with Mother Nature in a shovel. But while you were looking, before you were focused on the zoo, and this is one thing I did want to ask you, before you were set on the zoo, uh, where where were you looking? What were you researching? Were you in other parts of Houston looking around? Because the, the uh, layout of the columns in the background certainly does, in the foreground and the background, does represent uh, Tranquility Park quite a bit. Now, that might just been a kind of a city indicator or who knows what that's for. But I'm just wondering if you were looking around in other areas of the uh, of the city. Once I uh, read the 982 and said, it said that you have to start your uh, task at the 982, then my thought was there's only two lines before that. And that's the Fortress North uh, Cold as Glass So, and Friendship South. So my thought was start at the 982, go north, see if you could find Fortress North Cold as Glass somewhere near. If you could not, then I would have kept going and doing more searching. But since I felt like I had found those two icons, then I didn't feel like I needed to go any further north than Herman Park. And I spent a lot of time in Herman Park itself. There's a, a statue of George Herman himself out on the side of the park. I looked all over there. I got the old map. I walked around where I thought the old trains were. I looked over by the golf courses because I thought, well, these are sand dunes. Those are golf courses. And I did walk around the golf courses. But I will tell you, uh, that is a death wish because the people who are at that, at that golf course are bad. And balls go whizzing by all the time. So <laughs> nobody in their right mind would spend more than five minutes walking around that golf course. You, you could the Mitch Hedberg golf course. Exactly, man. <laughs> you could literally die in that golf course. So there's no way that there's no way any sane person would dig a hole in the in that golf course. So I eliminated that. And then oh, there was there was a, a Arabian stable, horse stable. Just what? No, yes, there's an was. In the 80s, there was an Arabian horse stable just north of Herman Park. So I wandered down where that was and looked around there. But again, I couldn't find anything from the image or from the verse to get me anywhere. But yeah, there was an Arabian horse stable. I thought, wow, that's a nice thing to find not too far from Herman Park to uh, key on the uh, uh, image of uh, the djinn. So he probably knew that. He probably knew that was there. I mean, it does make sense. And let's talk about this little area now. So you're in the children's zoo. You have this uh, Asia cultural icon or a cultural reference right near you. You have an image match in front of you. You have a a cryptic kind of a book reference that lines up. And we've seen several examples of this in other cities as well. So you feel you're in the right spot 
and you've explored all around the rest of the park and there doesn't seem to be an area, although I see online people coming up with, you know, more and more interesting concepts about a spot in the Herman Park where you can see everything. But it, it seems like you have some actual image matches that we can concretely identify. These are these columns right here. And you're in this area. I haven't found any other solid image matches in Herman Park. There's nothing for those little uh, train track type things that are going around the bottom. There's nothing for, I mean, we have the map images with the camel and possibly McGovern Lake, but other than the globe that you found, was there doesn't seem to be any kind of match for that. There doesn't seem to be a match for the rhino. We thought we had one, but you know, off on that. Anything else that you can see? Some people, our, our good friend Eric has posed that the hat of the gin is a match for the Miller Outdoor Theater, which could be correct. It, you know, uh, it doesn't mean anything more or less in the big scope of everything, but... Uh, other than those few things that have been mentioned and, and brought up over and over again, have, have you found any other image matches? I know we found an image match in the group privately a, a while ago of a, it was a uh, church that was across from the, the Glacelle with the star on the top that kind of matched the star in the, in the image. But I haven't found any other solid image matches and, you know, it kind of throws off a lot of theories where the image in a lot of other cities will get you from your couch to the actual park in some cases, certainly to the city and to the starting point. So Houston is a very strange bird. I, I mean, have George, have you found, Wilhouse, have you guys found anything else that were solid image matches to anything in the park or in the zoo that we haven't discovered? No, Houston's just so difficult to me just because of how much that park has changed. Like everything in that park has changed since the 80s. Um, it's just so difficult to find any kind of image rash. Yeah, the um, only other one, and you brought it up and I, I just remembered it, is on top of the auditorium, there was, which is shaped like a witch's hat, there is a weather vane. And the weather vane is a circle with a cross through it that looks just like the star. Oh. Yeah, and I think I posted that picture. We'll try and post all these images that we're talking about in the uh, Facebook page. I mean, I think I think I think the closest somebody in the uh, Houston Facebook group, um, I, I don't want to say their name because I don't have their permission, uh, found that the 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 blocks right to the left of the gin kind of resembled a storm drain of sorts because of how they're angled. But that's really about as close as I've, I've seen anybody come. So if you're in the back of the CZ by the back gate, and that's the image that I've, I've posted, that I've superimposed the image onto my panoramic picture, that's the last point where you can see the gin or see the elf fountain if that's your spout. If you go further south outside the fence, so if you can convince yourself that you should go further south, there's a little park across the street, which is where John, the uh, old zoo director, says that he thinks that used to be called Friendship Wood. If you think it's back there, you, there's no spout that you can see anymore. So that's the treasure ground. You can, there's no spout that you've passed that you can see that I know of. Now, maybe there was in 1982, and I just don't have a photo of it. What about the whistle? Interestingly... That could be many things. And remember, he is saying whistle. You know, certainly it could be the trainers all had whistles. Um, I have got some information that there used to be a Nabisco 
bakery across the street from the park. The bakery would sound two whistles a day, one at lunchtime, one at quitting time. It was a, one of those big steam uh, air type whistles. So you could hear it from the zoo area every day. So you hear it twice a day if you were there. So uh, there's some uh, anecdotal data that maybe that whistle, the uh, Nabisco quitting whistle was the whistle. I don't know. Can't tell you for sure. It could have been a train whistle. The main train went not too far from there and, and sound carry. So it could have been a train whistle. That's one of those things that you might never know what he was thinking. Right. What Do you remember what page on, what book page the 982 train is represented on? 199. So on page 199, you will find a representation of the 982 train. And there's also an anecdote about uh, one of the fair folk or their relatives. And um, if you see a picture of the original 982 train, now the, the number, it has a number on it, right? But the, it's not the full number. Does it say like 82 or something on it? It does say 82. And there's something printed right above it, but you can't. It looks like it might say number 82. But uh, it does say an 82. On Going it. back to what George said earlier in, in an earlier episode of the podcast, there are things you can get from the book. And here's just another example of it. Uh, he hid the 982 train in an exact uh, Perard illustration with the numbers 82 on it. Uh, it's on page 199. You can go check it out. There's also a, a steel beam, with, which, is, which is actually called an H-beam, which is turned on its side. And the side of the beam, the H part of that beam is heavily outlined. Interesting. And it's not so uncommon. You may, the, when you said that you had found the word zoo in the image, now I've seen that as well. And I always took that as uh, a 30, three, three zero to indicate the uh, 30 degrees north, or it's about 29.7 Houston, but roughly 30 degrees north. Um, but George has found in several images where he can trace out the, the name of a city. Is that correct? Yeah, I found that in, uh, in a St. Augustine, the name's plain as day. Uh, in Charleston, I can get Charl and Ton. It's, uh, it's hard to get the ENS. And then, of course, everybody's familiar with the, the post about the Boston in the illustration from the book. So, okay, it appears we're going to have to carry this over into a second episode, which we will have for you later on this month. We want to thank our guest, Will House from Houston. He'll be back with us for a second episode, which we will also bring on our other friends, Brian Hill and John Donahoe. And we will discuss the changes in the zoo, what different construction projects have brought Maybe some original placements of some things, some history. What else, Wilhouse? Just uh, some other people's thoughts about how crazy we were digging in the zoo. <laughs> and uh, Brian Hill has also had some correspondence with BP as well, correct? I won't spoil it too much, but Brian basically asked BP if he should let me dig. And his response was, I'll go look at the photos. Interesting. So we'll get more into that on part two. But we want to thank you for taking the time out of uh, your busy schedule and George out of yours. We, we all seem to be slammed. It's a uh, secret, the treasure hunt revolution going on online right now. There's so much uh, influx of new members coming in and new pages sprouting up. And it's just been hectic and uh, we want to thank you guys for taking the time out to join us for this episode. And we will have more in a couple of weeks for you. 
Tune in next time.